Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where every week we get together for an interesting discussion on our favorite subject, food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture, where we don't bore you, and this week is no exception. I've got a great guest. You know, the neat thing about my business is I meet a variety of people. I travel all over North America delivering speeches and sometimes workshops to agricultural organizations, corporations, associations. I meet a lot of interesting people. So it was about four years ago, I'm doing a program for Kent Feeds. You might know of Kent Feeds or one of what? One of the four feed companies that exist in this country. And it was uh, an interesting meeting salespeople for the most part, but one guy was in there. It turns out he's from Indiana, just like me. It turns out he also has some Purdue roots, just like me. He's smarter, though. He went to Kansas State and got a master's as well as a Ph.D. So he's a farmer, a Ph.D., a parent of some farm kids, a state fair exhibitor, and he only lives about an hour or so away from me. So I've got Jim Smith, who's with me, and I think you're going to really enjoy this discussion. We're talking about animal agriculture, we're going to talk about the role of people like him on the science side of production agriculture. You know, we're talking about meat, we're talking about dairy, we're talking about eggs. We're going to also then get into the reality of production ag, and then, of course, infighting in agriculture. Because who doesn't love a good dose of controversy? And Jim has been on the receiving side of that. Welcome to the show, Jim Smith. Thank you, Damien. It's great to be at De La Rosa in Huntington, Indiana. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, dear listeners, he made the trip. He made the trek to come here to the home farm. So if you ever want to be a guest on the Business of Agriculture podcast, dear listener, first off, have something interesting to say. Secondly, tell me, yeah, I'll come and see you at your home turf, and then I'll even give you a couple of beers while you're here. See, we have a lot of fun. All right, Jim Smith. <laughs> I gave the quick and dirty. You're a farm kid from Indiana like me. You went to Purdue University. You're a couple years younger than me. Then you went to Kansas State and got yourself a master's degree and a, and a PhD, both in animal science? Yes. Okay. Uh, did you work in between all of those degrees? No, I went straight from Purdue to Kansas State. Okay. You now work for Kent Feeds. If I'm not mistaken, Kent Feeds just merged with somebody in the last few years. Um, <clears throat> technically, we just merged operations with Blue Seal, which Kent Corporation has owned for quite a few years. Okay, so I know there were some, some changes, but apparently it's been a while. Your title with Kent Feeds? My title is Technical Swine Nutritionist. So you work with swine. Okay, describe your job. My job is spent supporting our dealer network with the products that come into a Kent bag helping our salespeople do a better job of supporting swine producers. And the other part of my job that I really enjoy is working with independent producers that look for a consultant to give them independent ideas of how to feed their pigs. Do we need, okay, first off, that's good. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, Hey man, that's pretty cool. Maybe you're an avocado grower. Maybe you are a tomato producer. It's more likely you're a corn or soybean producer because we have a lot of those in this country. And maybe you actually understand a thing about pig production. But if you do not, let's give the quick and dirty to somebody that maybe is a, uh, completely removed. They grow cotton in the panhandle of Texas. Tell the person about how modern hog production works. Modern hog production works. We, we have a, typically have a sow farm where we breed the pigs. 
the sow has her babies and ah, 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 ah. we don't call them babies right. on this I, show I, we I call them piglets they're, because they're baby the is a human term and remember dear listener the more you use human terms you allow animal activist wackos to humanize livestock and then they say how can you eat this baby pig <laughs> no you're eating pork you're eating bacon you're eating ham mm, bacon no we don't say things like baby okay we so, call them piglets, we call them chicks, we call yeah. them calves. So the pigs are weaned at three weeks of age. They're transferred to a either a nursery or a wean to finish barn. And less than six months later, they're 280 to 300 pounds. And they are slaughtered to become bacon, hams, loins. Well, I like that. I'm a big fan of pork. We just had ham and gr grilled ham and cheese sandwiches for lunch today. It was fantastic. So we got the cheese, we got the butter, we got the... The bread from the wonderful wheat farmers, and we got the ham from those hogs that you help become hams. Okay, you're out there on a consultant basis helping people get their pigs raised correctly, getting more nutritious. You've got tons of background. Were you raised around hogs? I started having hogs when I was in high school. 4-H FFA kind of thing? I started out at 4-H, and then I ended up with 35 sows before I went to Purdue. Got it. Do you still own pigs? We own 4-H pigs. Got it. <laughs> Do we need more meat animal veterinarians? Because you're a veteran. You're not a veterinarian. You're a PhD. You're married to a veterinarian, and your wife, the veterinarian, takes care of small animals, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. I'll give you a thought here. Several years ago, I did a presentation for the American Veterinary Medicine Association, uh, and they brought me in, and I learned a lot of stuff. One of the things I learned that was very troubling was the dearth, the absolute shortage of meat animal veterinarians. And I'm talking about what they told me. They said 8,000. I said, what in the hell are you talking about? They said there's 8,000 meat animal veterinarians. And by the way, dear listener, if you're saying, what's he talking about meat animal? Essentially, we talk about vets in a couple of uh, categories. Companion animal, uh, meat animal, meaning they take care of chickens, beef, dairy, uh, and, and pork. And then you got, you might say, oh, equine. And anybody that does that is probably making a lot of money because, as we all know, on the Business of Agriculture show, horse people are wacky, crazy, nuts folks. Okay, so American Veterinary Medical Association tells me only 8,000 meat animal veterinarians in the whole damn country of the United States of America. Is that true? As far as I know, <clears throat> that's how many we have. Okay, you get a big breakout of uh, hoof and mouth disease or... Uh, brucellosis or tuberculosis or whatever the thing might be. Mad cow for crying out loud. That's not enough to take care of stuff. No. Okay, so what do we need? Well, we need we need more veterinarians or more youth that want to become veterinarians to be large animal vets. Okay, what we really need then is uh, an increase in pay because where money flows, interest goes. They're not making enough money. I, I know my wife has doubled her salary when she went to small animal. So your wife was a meat animal vet, and then she decided, why do this hard work for half the money? I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to spay, spay kitties, and I'm going to uh, you know fix broken uh, legs on, on, on puppies, and I'm going to make twice as much money. Coming from a general mixed animal practice. Now, veterinarians that specialize in uh, poultry or swine have better salaries, but we don't have as many uh, of the veterinary students that want to specialize in one 
animal, meat animal species. Okay. So the thing is, like growing up the way I grew up here, you know, small uh, mid-sized dairy farm in Huntington County, Indiana, every county road had a dairy farm because we had a processor right here in Huntington, Indiana, another one in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So everybody had some rough ground, had a pasture, had a slab of cement. They put up a cement stave silo. They milked 40 to 70 cows. Uh, there was four veterinarians or maybe more here in Huntington, Indiana, and they could do it all. They could take care of your dog if he got uh, tangled up with a, you know, a raccoon. They could, uh, they could take care of your cows. They could sleeve your cows. Well, those vets went away because those small mid-sized dairies went away. So one has to go with the other. What needs to come back to get more large animal vets, more meat animal vets? What do we need to do? We probably need to cultivate uh, the students that will have an interest in in meat animals to become veterinarians. Honestly, I think since it's an economic issue, I would say if this is really going to be a problem for the industry, it's time to get proactive. If you're a pharmaceutical company or if you're a meat company, you say, we're just going to go ahead and subsidize this because we need there to be double the number of vets. Do they, do we need them right this second? No, but we sure as hell need them because first off, it's very physically taxing work. You and I are big, tough farm kids. We, we've been in the, we've been in the shoot a couple of times, but uh, you know, you get banged around. Do you really want to work that hard to make $80,000 to go and uh, be up all night pulling calves and, and doing that? It's, it's, it's physically taxing. It's, a, it's without a doubt, being a large animal vet, whether you're one species or multi-species, is a, is a tough job because you, not only do you have to be an expert in those species, but you also have to work. All right. Speaking of economic conditions... It's tough right now for hogs. We're sitting around, what, 46 cents when we're recording this here podcast. Milk, we know, is in a, in a tough situation. I saw a comment you put on social media that you called on a producer and he said, I, I'm losing money. What can I cut? I assume you're talking out of the rations. Yes, and, and I kind of joked that he's, he's playing like a dairy farmer because it typically when the price of milk drops, they pull everything out of the feed but the bare essentials. <clears throat> so with this producer... We pulled out everything out of the feed that was not corn, soybean meal, distillers, or vitamins and trace minerals. All right. You recommend that? No. <laughs> as a nutritionist, no. as a nutritionist, it seems like it's the worst idea in the world to uh, make the feed worse. I know that if you're in dairy, you don't even need the production. So you're saying, what the hell? If I'm losing, I'm losing a dollar for every hundred weight of milk, why not just sell less hundred weights? Uh, but then, of course, you still got the animal, and you still got the maintenance, you still got the employees, you still got the property. What's going to happen on that front? Well, I, in in this case, uh, it's just a cash flow issue with this producer. But if if we put in a product that when we're making forty dollars a head profit on the pigs, and it makes us an extra two dollars, then if we that product still works. Instead of losing $40, you lose $38. Yeah, so if the product worked when it was profitable, why wouldn't it still keep you from being less unprofitable? Correct. That's a double negative, by yeah, the way. But it works. What's the biggest mistake you see with producers in this business? Besides uh, cutting the rations because they think they're going to save a dollar and save their way to prosperity, which I always tell my people, I tell my audiences, sometimes you can't save your way to prosperity. Sometimes you're dropping dollars to pick up dimes. Please remember that agriculture. As Jim just told you, I'm talking to Jim Smith, Kent Feeds, PhD. You can also follow him, by the way, at Jim Smith, PhD 87, I think is what it is, Jim Smith 87 on Twitter. He just said something very important. If it makes you two more dollars when you're already getting $40 of profit per hog, when you're losing $40 per hog, why wouldn't it also save you $2 of loss to use the product? What's the biggest mistake producers make? 
the biggest producer I see, or the biggest mistake I see my producers make is they don't expand their network outside of their own farm. Uh, network in terms of? Talking to other farmers to learn what may or may not work for others and apply to their farm. Yeah, that's where going to these conferences. I actually, I know I get paid to speak at conferences, so if you're listening to this, please hire me. That's how I make my living, and I need to, you know, I can't afford my winter home if you don't hire me to go and speak at conferences. But also, there's a tremendous value not only in having me at your conference, but just having the damn conference. You get a bunch of people there that are in the business of agriculture, and they learn, and they learn during cocktail hour, and they learn during conferences, and they learn during trade shows, and they learn during the hallway time when they're out there getting a cookie and a glass of water because they're talking to other people, getting an outside perspective. What's the biggest mistake you see your competitors making, other feed companies? Maybe you don't want to tell me. <laughs> if we, if I could crack, crack that nut, I wouldn't be just a swine nutritionist. <laughs> uh, what's the biggest mistake your own company makes? You afraid? Are you afraid to say? You want to tell me? What are you guys doing wrong? Anything? Uh, <clears throat> market intelligence, I think, is a is a challenge for the feed industry as a whole, okay. particularly as we make a transition to serving the hobby market that is not based on profitability. Yeah, I talked to uh, a feed. I do obviously presentations for all different organizations. It was somebody that was with one of the feed companies. Call it the I don't know, uh, you know American Feed Association, and they were maybe another one of your companies, something similar to you. I don't know, but they were talking about their huge niche in show feed and I said show feed and of course it's feed for animals to take to a fair so these people that spend two thousand dollars on a pig and then feed it five hundred dollars worth of feed to go and sell this pig for a hundred and fifty dollars that's what the market price is but they did win a 25 cent blue ribbon and that's really important yes it is okay speaking of feed antibiotics still a hot topic not as hot um, from the swine standpoint, it's not as hot a topic because we've dealt with it. Um, we, we continue to look for alternatives to the antibiotics. We, we've in, implemented the veterinary feed directive so we know when we can use the drugs. Um, Are we using one half the amount of antibiotics in swine production that we did just 10 years ago? We're probably using a lot less than that. So maybe only one-fourth of the probably. antibiotics? And this is the thing, as much as we are pro-ag people, you and I, I will admit that the, I can't say the anti-ag people because they're nuts, but the people that brought this point up that we're using too many antibiotics had a point. Oh, we, yes. we were preemptively using the stuff. We were dumping it like water uh, on, on every critter in the, in the farm, and we were using the hell out of it. And you can say, well, that's not really why we got antibiotic resistance uh, bugs. Well... Uh, there's there, that's a tough spot, but either way, we're using too much of it, and I'm not sure that we need to be using it. Clearly, we were not. We're using a whole lot less. What well, about what about CCM? Well, and Damien, it, even if we did not contribute to resistance, it appeared that we did. When you just look at the sheer number of pounds that we use, you make a nice chart. It looks oh, cause and effect. Correlation does not equal causation, but like you said, when you look at the pounds of antibiotics we were using and the rise in antibiotic resistance bugs, the two didn't look well together, and that's enough to convince people because it's never about facts, it's always about feelings. Yeah. So it, back up to the producer that we talked about that took everything out. They took out the pulse dose of the, of the antibiotic that they used. So those pigs are going from birth to slaughter without a pound of antibiotic in their feed. And that's a big, huge reduction from what it was just yeah. five years ago? Yes. 
So let's talk about the reality of production agriculture, meat, milk, eggs, and everything else. All right, we know about price swings. We know where hogs are. That's your specialty. You are, after all, in case you forgot, dear listener, the technical swine nutritionist, Jim Smith, is with me here. You know about swine. Let's talk about everything else. Milk's in a tough spot. We know commodities are in a tough spot. We know that price swings are part of agriculture. Is contractual production the future of all of this industry? You know how it is in yeah, poultry. Yeah. You just yeah. get paid to put up a poultry barn, and you go out and take care of the chickens, and they're owned by Tyson. That's how it is in most of pork now. You just put up the barn on your four acres, and you get a contract with a large integrator, and you bring in little piglets, and you take care of them, and you spread the manure, and you get compensated, and you don't have to, as a producer, stomach any of the risk because you're getting paid to just go and take care of the animals. It happens in poultry. It happens in pork. Is it going to happen in dairy? Is it going to happen in corn? I, I think dairy is, is a given. I think that we're we're already look seeing it. Heck, one of the more prominent dairies in Indiana announced that they're they're stopping to to milk at the end of the year, after they said, "Oh, we're going to survive this." So, from a produce from a processor standpoint or a retailer standpoint, they want to be guaranteed a certain supply. They want to be guaranteed a specific price. So that leads into contract production. It doesn't give us as much profit potential, but it guarantees a market. It guarantees a certain price in. That's probably the way we're going with a lot of these. Cattle's going to be a little more tough because it's a longer market, but I can see dairy as the next step. I can see dairy as the next step of contractual production also. I had to tell some people that asked me, they said, you hear this poor little dairy farm got put out of business? I said, wait a minute, let's be realistic here. I have an agricultural economics degree. The numbers work against dairy right now. Anyhow, and they've got an issue of can they stomach the price fluctuations? But I said, more importantly, let's just realize it comes down to supply and demand. And if you do want to stay with us and not have to go through a year and a half of drought or, you know, shall we say a trough, you probably have to do something else. And it does look like large integrated uh, of processing is going to happen that way. Is contractual production going to happen on soybeans, corn, wheat? I think we're I, within our lifetimes, I think we'll see that. And I think it's going to come down to specific traits where you will raise a specific kind of corn that will go to a dairy because it ferments better in the silo pit or it is more digestible for the pigs or provides a specific amino acid profile i think we'll see that it's I, been tried but we it, it was too early then i agree with you it's going to be the second running of it it's been tried before but now it's going to be very specialized and you're going to say all i do is grow this type of a product that goes to this type of a livestock operation and that livestock operation is also contractually uh under uh, a contract to produce just for this place that wants this profile of hog chicken dairy, whatever. Environmentalism. It's the new argument to steal money from chemical companies. If you listen to my last podcast, and you should, I talked about Monsanto. Environmentalism also was the issue with the settlements against the pork. That's Murphy Brown, part of uh, Smith, uh, Smithfield in North Carolina. So environmentalists are realizing they can go in and shake the cage, get all the neighbors worked up, get everybody into a tizzy. They have amazing tentacles with media, and then they can push their agenda. So they push their agenda against Monsanto, and that's the Environmental Working Group, which released its own study, and it was very not a study. It was very much a hit piece. And then, of course, they did the same thing against pork with Smithfield down in North Carolina. So environmentalism is removing our products, the technology we need, 
Tell me about environmentalism against meat. What, what's going to happen here, Jim? What are we going to see happen on this environmental angle that somehow meat is bad for the environment? Well, we see it. We've seen it in California with the uh, with the Belch Law, um, w with the thought that cows will fart and they'll belch, and that's bad for the ozone layer, and it, it gives us more greenhouse gases. So they're already setting the stage where cattle, in particular, are bad. On yeah. the pig side, it's no longer fertilizer that you put back in the so soil. It's manure. It's a toxic waste. So the, the the story's already started to tell, and as we get further away from being us farmers and the guy down the corner with 40, 40 cows milking and you become the guy that's got 5,000 cows, the disconnect between that being my food product and that being something bad for the environment is going to be easier to make. Yeah, I think that the environmental argument against ag, and I talk about a lot here, is where we really need to apply our energy and effort because, like you said, the more they have, and it seems as though environmentalism and media do move lockstep together. I mean, this has been going on for a while. Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. My God, that's a 50-year-old book. And that was the whole uh, beginning of uh, getting rid of DDT mm -hmm. and the idea that somehow uh, insecticide was the reason there was no bald eagles. Well, that may or may not have been. could have been because of a lot of other things. Is environmentalism going to give us lab meat? That's interesting because I listened to podcasts about lab meat today, and I think it's going to become a reality. The only our, the only marketing thing that lab meat has going for it is the angle on environmentalism, Jim. But I don't see a consumer base that is hell-bent on all-natural organic. I don't want you putting glyphosate on my soybeans, even though I don't know what glyphosate is and they don't even know what a soybean plant looks like. I don't see that same consumer base going for Petri dish protein anytime soon. Well, I don't think it'd be anytime soon, but we didn't think the organic production would take off like it did either. Organic took off and grew by a good percentage, but it still is also less than 10% of the consumption here in the United States. Probably the same in Canada. Vegan plant-based meat. Are we going to see it? Oh, I don't have any. I would. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Would not surprise me. Well, you see, they're taking different products yeah. and grinding them up, and they're trying to create the same mouthfeel and texture that burger has. And they take some beet juice and throw it in there, so it looks like blood. So I. So you have you have beet slime instead of pink slime. I don't see it. I don't see it being as trendy either, even oh. though uh, they're doing it. Talking to Jim Smith. You should keep up with him also, as I do. Just find him through me on Twitter, on social media. He's a fan. He's a friend of the show. He's also a farm boy, a farmer, a Ph.D. in animal science, and he is my guest here today. Now we're going to talk about something because he keeps up with me online, and you probably do too. That's why you're listening to this show. Agricultural infighting. That's right. We like to fight with one another. Good golly, what's wrong with us? We're only 7% of the population, 1% of us farm, 7% of us work in this industry, and geez, do we like to fight with each other. This has always been an issue. You realize, dear agricultural friends, beef against sheep. Remember that? Of course you don't. But in the Old West, the beef people went around saying that those sheep dug the plants right out by the roots, and by God, they're going to ruin it all for all of us. Then it was fences versus range. Oh, those bastards wouldn't put barbed wire in. How am I supposed to drive my cattle to Kansas City? It's still happening. We're still fighting with each other. Now it's organic versus conventional. Big versus small. By the way, define either. Factory farm versus small local farm. Okay, define the difference. 
Then it's ethanol versus feed. Remember that a few years mm -hmm. ago? The, the livestock people were screaming bloody murder. that These people are raising corn that's going to gas ethanol instead of feeding us. And I'm starving out here. I'm, I'm losing my money. Okay, we're still fighting with each other. Now we're doing it online. What do you see? Because you got people fighting with you because they don't like your stance on things with ag. Well, it, it's just like the normal population. We're going to have people that disagree and have different opinions within ag. Um, having a kumbaya where everybody gets along is, is unrealistic because ag is just a subpopulation of the normal population. So you're going to have jerks and you're going to have saints all in the same same field. Where we have trouble is where we turn disagreements into labeling somebody with the, the most popular ism of the day. Sexism, chauvinism, racism, uh, environmentalism, who knows? It's all the same thing. Although you have people that fight with you online. What do they like about you or what do they not like about you? Oh, according to some, they don't like much. <laughs> Uh, I think the, the biggest run-in that, that I've had is where you disagree with somebody and it's turned into an attack. And it's simple disagreement of what you said, what you posted, what you wrote mm -hmm. is turned into, oh, you don't like me, oh, you're this. Instead of stepping back and saying, oh, okay, you disagree with this. You might still like me on all this other stuff. See, the problem is you're concerned about this. I have people that fight with me so much that it's not even an issue. But, hey, it's been going on for a long time. Hell, I used to be a political comedian. I had people come up to me afterwards and want to yell at me over their political beliefs. I was just a political comedian. I had people that wanted to take it very personally. So I've dealt with this before. I will say that Twitter is the most toxic. So if you're out there and you're an ag listener and you're enjoying my program and you're saying, I don't know, man. Twitter is the most toxic. It seems to be the most fight-oriented of all the social medias. Facebook, probably a little bit that way. And certainly then on LinkedIn, people still keep it a bit more professional. I don't know about Instagram. It's just a bunch of pictures. So That's how right. can you fight with a picture? Right. Although that happened to you. You pointed out on Twitter that a woman was showing pictures of uh, immature sweet corn. And she was carrying on that it was better than that chemical doused sweet corn, that GMO sweet corn. And you got maligned for pointing out that she was an idiot. Yeah, and we, we the malignment came from, oh, we can't attack her. We have, to, we have to just educate her. Well, her education had already been made because she was already in the camp that non-GMO immature corn was the best thing. So at what point do we stop just trying to be nice and we stand up and say, no, you're wrong. Yeah, this idea we're going to educate people. I tell my audiences, I've been saying for a long time, we're not going to educate these people. They are already, they're already in the camp that's against anything that's logical. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. They're just not going to, they're just not going to come around. So it's finally, it's okay to tell someone they're an idiot if they're not going to be educated. Where do the fights really need to happen? Oh, the fights don't have, need to happen between the dairy farmer and the beef farmer, or the hog farmer and the crop farmer. It needs to be us getting together and not saying that we have to agree, but we are 1% of the population. We are being attacked from so many different angles. So we have to have somewhat of a solid uh, solidarity in what we're doing. That doesn't mean to say that we all have to come out and say we all need to have Roundup. We all have to have BST, but we have to have the... Uh, the the message that we're out here doing our best to try and raise food for you and we're not trying to kill you. I actually agree with you and, and that, that's, that's uh, fully dead on. I have people that don't like 
my stance. I have people in agriculture that don't like my stance. I have people in the business of agriculture that call me a pretty boy because apparently I need to wear my coveralls when I get up on stage and wear my Carhartts. Look, I just got done changing the oil in the combine. So I've been called a pretty boy. I've been said that I don't speak for them. I've been called all kinds of stuff. But I still remember that I have great fans. I have great clients. I have people that hire me to come and deliver my comedy and commentary on the business of agriculture. And that's also why I want to thank you for being here. You've been a client. You've been a guest now on the business of agriculture. And I want you to close this out. One lesson, one idea, one thought that anybody in the business of agriculture can benefit from hearing. Just give me one thought. We covered antibiotics. We covered animals. We covered animal agriculture. We talked about veterinarians. We talked about production ag. We talked about a lot of stuff. One thought, one idea. As we talk about the, the business of raising food, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, vegan-based or it's pro animal protein-based, I think what we, the one thought we need to remember is that people pay attention to words, and but you need to listen to the words that they say. On our customers? Oh, both internal and external for our customers. And, and, and the other one is understanding who our consumer is. The consumer might not be the loudest person in the, in the room, it's the guy that walks through Kroger and tries to figure out what bottle of milk he wants to get. Yeah, and you know what? Our consumer is the reason we exist, and I say this all the time. You know, it's one thing for us to say, oh, we're going to educate, we're going to do this. At the end of the day, we all work for them. It's their money, uh, and that's the case for everybody, from the dry cleaner to the, to the local Wendy's to us in agriculture. We all work for somebody else's money. Jim Smith was my guest. He'll be a guest again. He's a friend of the show. We appreciate you joining us. Mr. I'm sorry, Professor. I'm sorry, Dr. Jim Smith. <laughs> give them your handle on Twitter so they can keep up with you. Uh, my handle on Twitter is at JimSmith87. At JimSmith87. Keep up with him. Keep up with me. Appreciate you joining us. Till next time, this is the Business of Agriculture. We'll see you here. Thanks. <laughs>